Unfortunately, no one can be told that we take security seriously. You have to see it for yourself. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You change your password and have credit monitoring for the rest of your life. You take the red pill and have your eyes opened, mostly because you'll be looking for that YubiKey you always misplace. And I show you how deep the AppSec goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Which means this week we talk with Dan Guido from Trail of Bits about evolving security testing into a practice that sends attack classes to extinction. In the news segment, the latest log for J, juicy details on FPGA, threat models for the ANCIA, risk, risks that won't go away, and more. Wait, and the truth, nothing more. Start dodging bullets and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. Looking to improve your web application security? Probly is reinventing web application security. Probly focuses on the vulnerabilities that matter, eliminates false positives with evidence-based scanning, and provides a simple point-and-shoot solution that is easy to use. Probly's thorough coverage ensures accurate identification of vulnerabilities in any modern web application or API. Improve your web application security processes by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Probly and start your free trial today. This is episode 178, recorded December 20th, 2021, two days before The Matrix Resurrections comes out. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm not here with Agent Smith, but I am here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. Mr. Shima. Um, hey, how you doing? I, I'm uh, One correction on your uh, intro. I think, unfortunately, a lot of our listeners are already dodging the bullets, so um, I hope they keep doing that successfully. <laughs> Oh, so much log for Jay. Yes, and we'll have to talk about that more. But uh, we've also got a great guest coming up. So let's get into some announcements and introduce him. Um, John, just in case you were worried, don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms. Also, we had an absolute blast putting together this year's Security Weekly Unlocked virtual event. All presentations are now available on demand for your viewing pleasure. Please visit securityweekly.com unlocked to register for free and watch now. Dan Guido is the CEO of Trail of Bits, a cybersecurity firm he founded in 2012 to address software security challenges with cutting-edge research. He has grown the team to 80 engineers, competed in the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, built an industry-leading blockchain security practice, and refined open-source tools for the endpoint security market. Dan also serves as a director at HackSecure, an investment syndicate focused on seed stage cybersecurity firms. Dan contributes to cybersecurity policy papers from RAND, CNAS, and Harvard. And he runs Empire Hacking, a 1,500-member meetup group for NYC area cybersecurity professionals. Hello, Dan. Thank you for joining us. Hey there. Great to be here. Uh, you're a busy man, so it's great. Uh, we thank you for taking the time to chat with us. And uh, one of the things that really stands out from what you do, from what Trail of Bits do, is that security testing is different. And I think maybe it even goes beyond security testing. And I sort of had the idea to preface this with 
being an outdoors person, I like the tenet of take only pictures, leave only footprints. And that's important for preserving the environment. But in AppSec, we don't want to we, we, we want to see security testing actually have an impact on the environment. And we want to take more, we want to do more than take only screenshots and leave only vulnerable reports. And I think that's exactly what Trail of Bits is doing. And uh, one of the things, you know, I, there's a lot of topics you run into, blockchain services, crypto. Endpoint, as mentioned, uh, start us off on this trail of bits. Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> um, you know, for people that don't know, Trail of Bits has been around for about 10 years. Uh, we've been doing low-level security research for most of that entire time. Got our start doing work with DARPA, doing work on uh, compilers, on automated program analysis, competed in the Cyber Grand Challenge, that kind of thing. And I'm trying to, uh, you know, the last five years or so, we've, we've built a consulting practice that offers this kind of help to people that are building technology products. And you know, I've been down this road before. I used to be a consultant at ISIC Partners a long time ago, and obviously have a lot of experience with the, the whole industry of people that are kind of like hunting for bugs in software, and that's great. But I wanted to come at this differently with, uh, with my background and research in mind. Um, and a lot of ways that Trail of Bits works um, is, is to eliminate vulnerabilities from the code that we review. We're trying to be a little bit deeper when it comes to uh, you know finding vulnerabilities, and we're trying to actually leave it in a better space than where we found it. Um, so that usually involves uh, really systematic testing and verification that I don't see a lot of other consulting firms, really a lot of other security engineers doing. Yeah, I think that that's one of the big things that stands out is that rather than even just saying, you know, walking developers through, here's how to fix the volumes, here's the recommendations, going back and retesting afterwards, I think, in fact, you would go and do, a, you know, make some commits for that code base, make that go in and harden it in, in with an architectural perspective, as well as you mentioned the idea of formal verification, which I think comes in very critically for cryptography, for protocols as well. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what are some good examples of, of ways you found that so successful to point to in this idea that you're eliminating vulnerabilities rather than just, you know, going in and trying to mitigate them? Yeah, sure. So I think it makes sense for cryptography. It's really easy for people to understand that cryptography is very brittle, right? Like when you look at cryptographic code, if you have an error in it, it's usually catastrophic. Uh, there, there isn't really a low severity cryptographic issue. It always turns into something where you can decrypt <laughs> something that should have been confidential. So the way that people write cryptographic code is they usually have extensive test vectors. They have uh, really um, like uh, low lines of code. They have small code bases that are then easy to apply formal techniques to evaluate to make sure that it's actually safe. But that kind of process around um, testing and verification hasn't really been used outside of cryptographic libraries that much. Um, you know, it's something that you find in small little little cases, like sometimes mm -hmm. there's some verified software that lives inside of your, you know, Airbus plane that you're on, or, uh, you know, m m some other like government systems that um, mm -hmm. you know, somebody's written from scratch in, in Haskell because they had to. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, you can't really use those techniques on most real software. Uh, it's kind of been stuck in this state mm -hmm. where for the longest time, the best that you could get is really, hey, we've got unit tests on our code, right? Because the code bases are huge. Like if you popped open the hood on Internet Explorer's code base or Firefox's code base or whatever, the, the state of the art there is, yeah, we've got unit tests, feature tests, integration tests, and maybe we do some fuzzing. Um, but I, I think with Trail of Bits, what we've tried to be is pragmatic around our application of more advanced techniques than that. 
so that people can get some mileage out of, um, you know, whether it's static analysis or property testing or symbolic execution um, and apply it to things that aren't just cryptographic software. Yeah, I think, and one of the challenges I imagine must be is that you can't walk up to necessarily any organization and say, let's dive into this advanced, you know, let's go well beyond the unit testing and get, get into this advanced state because a lot of organizations out there, unfortunately, are still scrambling with, hey, we need to do asset inventory. We need to figure out even just how do we triage vulns so we can set up a bug bounty program. So I, I do want to come back to this angle, but that's not to say that you're ignoring the broad swath of, you know, doing good work amongst the the AppSec environment. For example, the the PIP audit re recently came out, and that's you know a great tool for auditing Python environments. So, how does you know how did that project come about, and how does that tie in and support this other more challenging work uh, that that you're able to get into? Yeah, sure. So I think the point is that all these are fundamental improvements to various ecosystems. Like we're, we're, we're trying to make a lasting impression on the software that we work on. So with, um, we have an engineering team, right? And like, that's a critical feature of, I think a security consultancy is it's really not enough. Like, I think we kind of know where a lot of the bugs are and what's important is that we have to get to work to fix them. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of like tired of a lot of the standard kind of application security consulting work where you just go in, you find some bugs, fill up a backlog and then come back Thank next you. year and find all the same ones all right. over again. So if you want to make some fundamental progress in the industry, there's a couple different ways that you can do that. And it's by showing people how they can use more advanced testing and verification techniques so that they aren't stuck in this unit testing, you know, cycle of death for the last like 30 <laughs> years. Um, and it's also helping entire communities use things like two-factor authentication or eliminating the opportunity for people to upload uh, malicious packages to a, to a package manager, or it's um, fundamentally better uh, understanding of what your software dependencies look like. Uh, so we also released something uh, the other week called It Depends, which is what I think is the single best uh, SBOM related tool that exists because it can track down native dependencies. Um, so, you know, our engineering team focuses on that. A lot of the work that we get actually comes from large foundations, comes from large tech companies, and is really focused on open source software. Uh, so we've done a work, a, a lot of work with the, with the Python Software Foundation in particular, although there's a, a few others out there where, you know, we added <clears throat> two-factor authentication um, to, to PyPy. Uh, we added um, API tokens to PyPy. Um, and now we've got PIP audit that helps ensure that on the consumer side of things, that not just developers, but on the consumer side of things, that you have some ability to, to manage your software dependencies. So all this stuff, you know, I, 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 I really just don't think it's sufficient <laughs> to uh you know simply use the expertise that we've got to go out there and say oh you missed a bug oh you missed a bug oh you missed a bug so we're really into building tools and we're, we're into techniques um i'm not so much into individual bugs i, I love that you know what's interesting about oh, go ahead john yeah what what's sort of interesting about that we had a story on here what mike i think it was last week talking about um uh, lib nss from mozilla they found a um mm -hmm. you know even though, you know, where I'm going here is even though that particular library was been unit tested like crazy, fuzz had, in theory, they're doing all the right things, right, through their CIs. Um, they still weren't testing in an appropriate way to actually exercise the code and find a bug, which someone found it there. I think it was buffer overflow. Um, and that's it, it. What you're saying is resonating with me from the point of view of we can write unit tests all day and like actually show that the code is being covered. But if you're not actually either writing that test with, um, I'll say, intelligence or finesse 
Um, it, there's a lot more in just like saying, oh, we need to have a unit tester. We need to have an auditor. We need to have that. It's like, how can we take a step back and go, okay, this thing is this thing exists. How do we make sure it's secure? So I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. I think it's really funny that so many people in the security field have a really like limited familiarity with the way to talk about verification and the way the way to talk about software mm -hmm. testing. So like in, in general, like I, I, I think a lot of people are so willing to write off verification as a possible thing to do that um, like having never experienced it or having never worked with it, they, they think that like software is either formally verified or it's not. Um, and they don't realize that actually it's, it's quite a big gradient. Like when I think about software verification, it's the combination of two things. It's the properties that you have defined and it's the technique that you use to prove them. And just like regular tests, you can have areas that are highly specified where you have really good coverage of a lot of the properties that need to be there. And there's also a difference of testing techniques. There's like, a, you know, a unit test, and an integration test aren't exactly the same thing. Uh, the mm -hmm. same way that proving a property with a fuzzer or proving a property with mm -hmm. abstract interpretation results in potentially two different outcomes. Um, so, you know, we've had to review code bases that come to us and they say, oh, this is formally verified. So you're not going to find any bugs. Ha ha. <laughs> what you usually do is you end up looking at it and you're like, oh, okay. So all they proved was they proved that it doesn't have integer overflows. They didn't prove that it doesn't have this other class of bug. Mm -hmm. um, and you end up finding vulnerabilities in the gaps. So I, I think like a lot of what we've been doing when we consult with some of these open source programs, some of these things that have code checked into OSS fuzz, for instance, um, is you look at it and you evaluate like, okay, well, so they've, they've got a fuzzer running continuously on the code base. Um, how are they generating their corpus data? Uh, like, you know, are, 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 like how, how do they um, construct the harness? Like where are their entry points? Are they getting stuck at any kind of gate in the program? Do they have um, like a fuzzer mode in their build system? And there's there's a lot of different things there that just because you're fuzzing the code doesn't mean that you're fuzzing all of it. It doesn't mean that it's reaching all the coverage that it should. It doesn't mean that uh, you know, your, your fuzzing harness can even detect when uh, something bad happened that it's going to know about it. Um, you know, with compiled code, a lot of what people rely on is they rely on, well, did the software crash or not? And that's one security property. That's, you know, in, in, in verification language, that's one security property. That's a specification is the code should not crash. There's your spec, right? And that's basically what most fuzzers test. But you might actually want to add like, you know, a hundred other tests. You might want to say, well, did this thing encrypt properly? And can I decrypt it with the right key? And like, you know, all, all, all these other kind of application dependent security properties that then you can feed to a property tester or a verification tool suite and prove. So yeah, there, there's widespread variance um, in, in quality of these things. Uh, and one thing that, you know, motivates me is, is helping educate people about how they can do it better. Yeah, Log4j in particular, JNDI is not causing the application to crash. And I know um, when Harpley came out, I think there was a lot of discussion around OpenSSL, can it be formally verified? Would it, would formal verification have caught the, you know, just that heartbeat capability within an OpenSSL? And, and Dan, you've, you know, you mentioned fuzzing on the show here. We mentioned fuzzing for the last, you know, three, six, 12 months. Uh, but yeah. you have been looking at fuzzing, I think, in the order of decades. Tell us a bit more about oh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of our employees, Artem, Artem Dienerberg, he had this really funny idea to go dig up some old fuzzing papers, like the original fuzzing paper from like <laughs> UW back in 1989 and resurrected the fuzzer from the dead and got it to compile again and then resurrected all the code that they tested it on. Um, it, rather, sorry, they didn't resurrect the code they tested on. They found the modern versions of all the code they mm -hmm. tested it on. So like if they tested it on 
you know, X windows or whatever. He like found the current version of it in, I think it would, would have been like 2019 or 2020. And then we reran the 30 year old fuzzer on it and saw if there were any crashes and like, lo and behold, yes, <laughs> the vast majority of bugs that were reported back in 1989 with the fuzzer that was the first one ever created still causes software to crash today. Um, and the funny thing is we, we did this again. So we did fuzzing like it was 1989. Then we did fuzzing like it's 1999, which was the same thing, but against windows where, you know, the open source community, I think, obviously hugely opinionated kind of around like all, you know, many eyes make all bugs shallow, blah, 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 whatever. Um, you know, I'm, I'm much more of the mindset that, uh, you know, applied pressure makes, makes bugs go down, right? Like, uh, okay. training frameworks, uh, you know, requirements, right? Like you actually have to motivate people to, you know, take steps to, to reduce the number of bugs. And Microsoft has wholeheartedly done that since their big TPM memo back in, what was that? 2003. Um, so you do the same thing with a bunch of fuzzers for windows from 1999 and like again <laughs> you get crashes and things and you probably shouldn't so you know what i see here is i see that the industry even the best performing people in the industry are really like stuck they're frozen in time where <clears throat> unit tests are are really about as far as we've ever been able to get um, and it's something that's so impressive, like as a developer, that you would advertise it on a job rec. You would put it up and like <laughs> recruit people to your company, like, hey, you should work here because we actually test everything and we know it works. We don't just shift stuff straight to production from developers' <laughs> machines with no code review. But um, you know, fuzzing, fuzzing is like the new hotness. Fuzzing mm -hmm. you know, over the last like two or three years or so suddenly got kind of cool. And now people are kind of dabbling in it. And like, I've never heard somebody pick up a fuzzer and then regret spending the hour or so to learn it. Like nobody, nobody like kicks it afterwards. Like, ah, oh, this stupid thing. It doesn't, did, didn't help me at all. Like, of course it's like wonderful. It's like the most amazing new software testing technique, but you know, people's ability to use them is still pretty limited and it's, it's also not comprehensive, right? There's, there's some haves and there's a lot of have nots. There's a lot of people in the industry that I think are applying them extremely well. Um, mm -hmm. And they're doing it in these very tiny pockets. So I think the opportunity to improve that across the board is huge. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really thankful that programs like OSS Fuzz exist. But uh, like that, at the end of the day, that's really just a couple hundred, you know, open source libraries. Whereas your dependency as a person is is much more than that. Um, so yeah, the, the the field of testing is is kind of ripe for these advances. And I just I just I'm not like I'm not excited about what a lot of people do. When they when they tend to specialize in in the security field, like there are too many bugs to go out and handpick and like find them one at a time. Like we really need to invest in in tools and frameworks and in applying them um, consistently across the board, or else we're going to get nowhere. We're going to get just you know bowled over by the enormous quantity of code that gets written every day, and we'll never catch up. Absolutely. And it, it, a lot of that goes back to what you were describing with the work you've done with, the, with, with Python ecosystem, just to say, let's actually have two-factor authentication. It's easy to say that could be the, you know one of the simple one-line recommendation in a consulting report, but doing the work, actually implementing is the thing that makes a difference. Um, I'm, I'm curious there to also just to highlight other work you've done, because you're talking about the, the testing, fuzzing, um, 
and targeting, uh, where am I going with this? Targeting attack surfaces that are interesting, dependency analysis. We'll have to throw in the it depends reference into the show notes later. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's also, you know, we, we live in the world of GIFs and images and audio files and video files and all sorts of file, uh, user-generated content, which are notorious vectors for attacks. We've seen everything from, you know, even just iMessage has been exploited this year, even with their Blastdoors work on it. Um, and I know, I know you've done some work on how files are handled, files are read. You know, tell us a bit more about that particular attack surface. Yeah, sure. So something that's really unique about Trail of Bits is that we straddle the gap between government and industry. Um, a lot of the work that we do comes from DARPA programs. In this case, uh, you're speaking about work we've done on the DARPA AMP program, uh, where AMP is trying to identify polyglots and file parsers um, and help improve the security of them. So a, a polyglot or a, or a schizophrenic file would be a file that you can open in um, two different programs and it, it produces two different versions of itself. So mm. uh, think like a, a PDF that you could open in a PDF reader, but then you can also play it as a Nintendo Entertainment uh, uh, system <laughs> game, an NES ROM um, in your in your NES emulator. And the, the POC or GTFO kind of uh, uh, zine mm. is, is quite famous for this. Every single zine always has a different kind of uh, polyglot that's been assembled to make it viewable in like six different formats. It's really impressive. Uh, there's a guy on my team, Evan Sultanic, who like really takes that to heart every single release. <laughs> but, um, you know, this DARPA program paid a team of people from Trail of Bits to work on nothing but file parser security for four straight years. And we've produced early on in the program really incredible, useful tools like Polyfile and Polytracker, uh, where we can do things like um, what do you call it? Uh, like syntax aware diffing. So for instance, if you wanted to diff a, a JSON file against a different JSON file, um, normally you'd be limited by what lines things are on. And that's the the, the, the level of uh, like semantically aware information that you would get. You would get no semantically aware information. But we've got uh, capabilities that allow us to actually figure out what fields changed and by you know, what data in them. Um, and it seems like a simple thing to talk about, but there's a lot of computer science behind it that makes it work. Um, same thing with, with Polyfile. So we've been able to very precisely understand the file formats of what documents you're reading. Uh, so, you know, when I think about the applications, these kinds of things, like there seems to be a massive amount of wasted effort among uh, user-generated content sites and other kinds of, you know, uh, any, anybody that's got a website on the internet usually has some file upload thing somewhere. They've got an HR staff that has to do nothing but read PDFs all day. They've got, um, you know, like you said, GIFs, uh, you know, images, whatever um, that they have to parse. And every single person sits in 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 kind of like wonder or uh, or uh, you know has a nervous breakdown about the <laughs> the system that is parsing all that information before it reaches a a user at their company. Um, everybody's sandboxing image magic. Everybody's monitoring it to see when it's going to crash everybody's you know fingers crossed that it's it's not going to get um you know interpreted in a way that it wasn't supposed to uh so with this suite of tools we've got i think the the internet's best hope at producing reliable file parsers and layering on tools from existing processes and carving out existing parsers and making them safer uh that, that people can use right now um and, and that's, you know, just a general cycle that Trilobits goes through is I have mm -hmm. incredible access to funding from DARPA to work on all these sorts of techniques and tools. And then I have the consulting team that 
tries to, <laughs> you know, give them away to people. Um, and not everybody's the right consumer for it, right? Because sometimes people are trying to figure out their asset inventory. But uh, on one hand, I would say you have to have a portfolio approach, right? Like, so while you're trying to figure out your asset inventory, you also know there's other things that you should be doing too. There's got to be mm -hmm. some, you know, low risk, high risk things in your portfolio of projects that you're working on from a security organization. Um, and then also, uh, risk is, you know, very much sort of aggregated among a couple of big players, right? Like the, the joke is that everybody's only got like seven websites to go to a day. Um, so there, there's, there's quite an opportunity here to secure a couple of small things that end up being very meaningful to a lot of people. Uh, like you message, you mentioned iMessage, right? Like these are things that, uh, are, are kind of like central dependencies that obviously require some more effort. Indeed, yeah. And six of those sites go down if e U.S. East one isn't available, right? Um, <laughs> I think the uh, you know, you're highlighting here uh, one of the things I'm you know uh, an underlying theme I've been going for in this segment is the idea that let's get beyond penetration testing, just find the vuln, deliver a report, walk away. And I you're you're clearly leading the charge on this. So one of the questions then how should how can organizations think to engage you or an organization like you when they say we do want to do something interesting, but maybe we're either not sure what that is or what's the type of what, what, what's the type of really cool vulnerability or not not vulnerability, what's the type of really cool problem uh, that makes you get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think so. I the one one way that I would kind of summarize this is I, I don't like to be paid to find find bugs, right? Like, mm -hmm. don't pay me to find bugs. <laughs> Although it's a necessary part of um, a security program, right? like you 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 should do that on a regular basis. But I think people overweight it, right? And they overweight it at the consequence of not thinking about fundamental improvements. Like, okay, this was a survey of the kinds of bugs that we have present in our code base let's use this first step where maybe you do a one month pen test and you discover, you know, you stick your hand in the, in the barrel and you pull out a fistful of bugs. And now what are you going to do about that? Right. And the process of what do you do about that? Shouldn't be, Oh, we'll have a pen test again next year. It's <laughs> eliminating each of the causes of those issues and thinking about engineering projects and improvement projects that follow on from it. And that's an area where trail of is equipped to help. That's that's an area where you know we have our engineering team, we have uh, you know verification engineers, we've got test testing experts, we've got all kinds of people that can help you fill in those gaps and improve the maturity of your software, so you're turning out less bugs over time. Because that's what's going to get you to like you know bug zero, right? The the, the version of inbox zero that you, that you kind of want. Um, so kind of finding a way to get off the the, the testing treadmill. But yeah, so to summarize here, you should pay us to do an initial assessment. Like generally, that's a good place to start. And then based on the initial assessment, there's no shortage of ideas that our team will have in speaking with any of our clients about ways we can help them do better next time. Because what I would like to do is I would like to get stumped the next time that we speak to you. Um question came to mind there based off the way you were just talking about that. Um and and it's it's the the, the, the direct question here, and then I'm going to lead into it, but the direct question is, it seems like it might make sense to educate more a collection of project managers in some of these companies that get your report, right? Mm -hmm. So think about it. Any of these I've been involved in, you know, either side of the fence, um, uh, audit goes through, you have a list of findings. Usually some manager gives that to a project manager, and they're tasked with making sure everything is cleaned off that list. And it seems like if that particular person would 
have the ability to take that step back again and go, okay, we've got 50 vulnerabilities. Um, let's see if we can actually make some sense if there's uh, some sort of common pattern going on, how these are, that we can actually go and address that pattern instead of, address, instead of just addressing the particular vulnerability. Would that Does that resonate with you or is that something you guys do or have you tried that? Or Yeah, I mean, it starts in the sales process and it ends with the report. And we've got a little bit of a different report template when it comes down to it. Like all of our reports now have an automated testing and verification section. They have a maturity evaluation where we just come up with our own metric of a couple of different kind of security control areas that help you understand if you're kind of ahead of the game or behind it in terms of you know access control management or um, authorization controls or uh, you know complexity management and dependencies, that kind of thing. And our reports specifically describe kind of long-term projects as well as groupings of, of, of categories of issues that we found um, and help you plan those things out. But this starts way earlier, right? Like when I'm, when I'm talking to people uh, for projects of ours, a, a very frequent thing is, you know, hey, at the conclusion of our engagement, we're probably going to find a couple of unique application-specific bug classes in your code. Um, do you want to build in an extra week where we write some SEMGRIP or CodeQL scripts that directly address these? Then you can plug them in your CI afterward. And usually that's like enough of the drug to get you hooked of like, oh, <laughs> like you can leave behind something that helps me all year round instead mm -hmm. of just waiting for the next PDF report to come out from you. Um, and, and that's, you know, those two technologies in particular have been points of leverage for us where they're very developer friendly. Uh, much more so than previous iterations of, of testing tools. They're not like, you know, the fortifies and check marks of old. Um, they're, they're very, uh, you know, easy to learn, tough to master kind of stuff. Um, and they, they integrate very well into developer test cycles. Um, so usually once you get like one or two people on board from the team, you can, you know, educate them. I, Trail of Bits can like educate them about how they work and then give them a sample that works on their code base. And usually that's enough to get the ball rolling. No, that's a, a lot. The, the, again, there's a lot of work that you're doing in this area that's also out in the open that I think people can learn from. And, you know, looking at uh, github.com slash trail of bits, your, your trail of bits repo has a lot of this research. I think it has some of this guidance as well. And even some, if I'm correct, um, even some reports that you've, you've, you've worked on that you put out publicly. So it, it I, and I'm highlighting this because it just builds towards that idea of how do we do things better that you're describing how do we build a how do we leave behind a process rather than a list of jira tickets and um I think with that in mind, want to maybe switch to thinking, looking towards the new year, looking towards 2022. Uh, Dan, what are some things that you're excited about to to get into research that that uh, you haven't either been been funded quite yet for, or um, that you're you know you're going after to get that funding, whether it is for DARPA, these long term types of ch uh, projects, or if you can talk about them, uh, just some interesting work amongst enterprises or organizations that you're doing testing around. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so I think a couple of things that I'm really excited about. Uh, first is our cryptography team has been making tremendous progress kind of mastering the field of zero-knowledge proofs. Uh, so zero-knowledge proofs, if you're not aware, is a, a set of technology that allows you to communicate some, like, um, a, a proof, some information to a third person without revealing your source of that knowledge. So the, the stereotypical example would be that you could prove to your mortgage broker that you have a million dollars in your bank account without giving them a bank statement. That would be a zero knowledge proof that you could make. Um, and uh, actually, 
this morning on the day that we're recording, uh, we have a big vulnerability release with, and I know I said earlier, like, don't, I don't care about vulnerabilities. I care about techniques, but we use this as kind of like a hook to, to open up, um, what we're building right now is the authoritative guidebook for how to write zero knowledge proofs uh, correctly, as well as code samples for most of the common operations, because it's a very unspecified field and it's a very high potential field. Uh, the whole field of privacy preserving encryption, I think, like most people know about uh, zero knowledge proofs, multi party computation, homomorphic encryption, uh, even differential privacy would kind of fit into that, which is just a technique where, you know, in general, um, I don't want to share all the data that I have with somebody else. Um, you know, I want to eliminate access to it from people that don't need it. And what people are doing is they're using more advanced cryptography now to enable that so that like the, the opportunity for just like risk pooling inside of some massive blob of data that's aggregated inside of your company, you can reduce the risk of that whole database getting popped and exposed on the internet by using this kind of modern cryptography, privacy preserving cryptography. Um, in order to, to reduce the risk of dealing with that. Um, so that whole field, I think, is going to get a boost forward by the fact that we're re releasing this, this documentation and building on it throughout the year, as well as citing some examples of where the industry's gone wrong with a few things. Um, in terms of software uh, like assurance, um, you know, we're investing a ton in cloud-native uh, tooling right now. So I think you're going to see a lot of work from us, uh, particularly with the CNCF and the uh, HashiCorp tool suites, um, with custom tools to help people use those things safely, as well as foundational improvements to those ecosystems. Uh, so things like, um, you know, Envoy, uh, you know, configuration checkers, um, uh, you know, making sure all those things are tested effectively and they use the most advanced techniques possible to do so. Um, and uh, yeah, just in general, you know, our, our, our DARPA programs are always going. There's always something crazy going on. Uh, <laughs> we're... <laughs> I mean, we're, we're on a portfolio of about six or eight of them um, at the moment. So we have a team of about nice. 30 people that are producing research every day. And I would really encourage interested folks to just subscribe to our blog and our Twitter because they'll get continuous updates about all this random alien technology that we end up uh, <laughs> dropping out on GitHub. That is awesome. And for, for anybody who's just listening and not watching the show, uh, Dan's face just really lights up as he starts to talk about the, those type of DARPA projects. So clearly they're fun. Clearly they're interesting. And as you described, they're giving us a, a great movement in improving an, an overall, a fundamental improvement of the, the software security ecosystem. So, so I only, I'm just going to, we'll, we'll keep following that work and, and keep us posted on all of the cool stuff coming out of it. It's your tax dollars at work. I mean, this is what the government's paying for. Like they, they, they. It, it's it's a waste for us not to publish it, right? It would be a it would be a poor use of of, of tax mm -hmm. dollars to to not actually put it out there on the internet and try to encourage people to use it, right? Like we're not just doing this because we enjoy it. Obviously, we enjoy it, but like that's that's not the end goal. The end goal is that this actually has some kind of impact on on the industry. So uh, so yeah, try it out. That's awesome. Try it out. And uh, yeah, just once again, thank you, Dan, for coming in, just sharing a lot of this uh, with us and our listeners. This is a, a wide range, everything from crypto to formal verification to fuzzing and, you know, very concrete improvements in Python. This has all been great to hear. Thanks for having me. Want to thank everyone else for listening. Want to thank John as well. We're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week.